In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came from Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh, Stand in the court of Yahweh's house and speak to all the cities of Judah that come to worship in the house of Yahweh all the words that I command you to speak to them. Do not hold back a word. It may be they will listen and everyone turn from his evil way that I may relent of the disaster that I intend to do them because of their evil deeds. You shall say to them, Thus says Yahweh, If you will not listen to me, to walk in my law that I've set before you, and to listen to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I send to you urgently, though you have not listened, then I will make this house like Shiloh, and I will make this city a curse for all the nations of the earth. The priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of Yahweh. And when Jeremiah had finished speaking all that Yahweh had commanded him to speak to all the people, then the priest and the prophets and all the people laid hold of him, saying, You shall die. Why have you prophesied in the name of Yahweh, saying, This house shall be like Shiloh, and this city shall be desolate without inhabitant? And all the people gathered around Jeremiah in the house of Yahweh. When the officials of Judah heard these things, they came up from the king's house to the house of Yahweh and took their seat in the entry of the new gate of the house of Yahweh. Then the priest and the prophets said to the officials and to all the people, This man deserves the sentence of death because he has prophesied against this city, as you have heard with your own ears. Then Jeremiah spoke to all the officials and all the people, saying, Yahweh sent me to prophesy against this house and this city all the words you have heard. Now, therefore, mend your ways and your deeds and obey the voice of Yahweh your God. And Yahweh will relent of the disaster that He has pronounced against you. But as for me, behold, I am in your hands. Do with me. This seems good and right to you. Only know for certain that if you put me to death, you will bring innocent blood upon yourselves and upon the city and its inhabitants. For in truth, Yahweh sent me to speak all these words in your ears. Then the officials and all the people said to the priest and the prophets, This man does not deserve the sentence of death, for he has spoken to us in the name of Yahweh our God. And certain of the elders of the land arose and spoke to all the assembled people, saying, Micah of Morsheth, prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and said to all the people of Judah, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountains of the, ha of the house a wooded height. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him to death? Did he not fear Yahweh and entreat the favor of Yahweh? And did not Yahweh relent of the disaster that he had pronounced against them? But we are about to bring great disaster upon ourselves. There was another man who prophesied in the name of Yahweh, Uriah the son of Shemaiah from Kiriath-Jerim. He prophesied against the city and against the land in words like those of Jeremiah. And when King Jehoiakim, with all his warriors and all the officials, heard his words, the king sought to put him to death. But when Uriah heard of it, he, he was afraid and fled and escaped to Egypt. Then King Jehoiakim sent to Egypt certain men, Elnathan the son of Akbor and others with him, 
And they took Uriah from Egypt and brought him to King Jehoiakim, who struck him down with the sword and dumped his dead body into the burial place of the common people. But the hand of Ahiakim, was, the son of Shaphan, was with Jeremiah, so he was not given over to the people to be put to death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, forgive us. Forgive us when we treat your holy word as though it were background music. When we take it so lightly. When we hear it with anything less than the kind of reverence and fear that we understand demands the totality of our person. Forgive us when we simply hear your word and don't listen to it. Father, have mercy on us now. May our hearts be soft, receptive by your grace to your word. For it is with you that we have to deal. And we will be dealt with in either grace or judgment. Our only hope is that you would grant grace to hear the good news of Christ. So that we would turn from our sins and turn towards you. So open our ears, Father. In Christ's name, amen. Because this chapter, well, it's situated in the beginning of King Jehoiakim's reign. And the previous chapter occurred during the fourth year of Jehoiakim's reign. We already know the answer then that this chapter, to the question that this chapter poses. As reading the Old Testament in light of the New Testament, proves illuminating. So, the future helps you understand the past. Chapter 25 occurs later than chapter 26, and so we read it knowing that the hope that's held out here in verse 3 will not be realized. Judah won't listen. She doesn't listen. And so chapter 25 then, in illuminating chapter 26, darkens it. Chapter 25, in illuminating chapter 26, darkens it. We don't read it hopefully. We read it knowing this hope won't be realized. We read it though, we come to the end of this chapter and we see Jeremiah is alive. We understand his voice is functionally dead. They allow the prophet to live, but his words to them are dead. So this chapter then, what it does is it answers, how do we get from here to there? How do we get from chapter 26 into the future that's spoken of in chapter 25? How do we get to the people having ignored Jeremiah's voice for 23 years? And though we're only backing up a number of 
you know, four years or so, the answer uh, is, is there for us. And I hope it's an alarming one for many who are sleepy. It happens not with the masses all together, all the time, every instance, and nothing else, wanting Jeremiah to die, wanting to kill him, wanting to silence him, rage, hatred of the message that he's delivering. It happens, yes, with some wanting to rub him out, and with the masses being easily swayed by the leaders, but it really happens with Jeremiah being ignored. He's heard, but he's ignored. They hear. Many may even hear with conviction. Many hear acknowledging he is a prophet. He's spoken to us in the name of Yahweh. They acknowledge this. But this is as far as it goes, and it's not far enough. Jeremiah is tolerated. He's ignored. If they executed Jeremiah, certain destruction would have come upon them. But in simply tolerating him, they don't escape that destruction. This is the most common highway to judgment. Not that of outright hatred of the Word of God, but hearing it and not thinking anything more of it than that. Jehoiakim was placed on the throne by Pharaoh Necho after his brother Jehoahaz had died a few months after, only three months after, his father Josiah had died. So within a span of less than a year, we've got three kings sitting on the throne. Josiah, and then two of his sons, Jehoahaz, or Shalom, and Jehoiakim. So in less than a year, you plummet from the bright reforms of King Josiah to the dark apostasy of Jehoiakim in less than a year. The apple falls very, very far from the tree, and it falls quickly, and it rots quickly. Leading up to chapter 25, with its message of judgment, not only on Judah for not having listened, but its message of judgment on all the nations. Leading up to that, you remember in chapters 21 through 23, there was uh, Jeremiah denounced the kings of Israel, and then he denounces the prophets of Israel. And so now following chapter 25, what we have is a number of episodes with Jeremiah interacting with the false prophets. Chapters 26 through 36, we'll see a lot of interactions with the false prophets. Kings, the king too, but really with the false prophets. And then following all of this, in chapters, 20, uh, in chapters 37 through 45, we'll see the fall of the city, the destruction of Jerusalem, and then it will end with the oracles against the nations, the judgment of the nations. So you see all this in reference to chapter 25 and 26. Chapter 25, judgment on Judah, on the nations. So following all these interactions with the prophets, the people not listening, which is why God said the judgment would come, following these interactions with the false prophets, and they're listening to the false prophets rather than Jeremiah, we see the city destroyed, and then we see the nations and their judgment being spoken of. So, again, then, how do we get from here to there? How do we get not just from 
uh, this instance, but the judgment that comes on the city and the judgment that comes on all the nations, we get there with the people not listening to Jeremiah and listening to the false prophets. Jeremiah is tolerated only to be rejected. He receives instructions, verse 2, to preach a temple sermon. A temple sermon during what is no doubt a feast day because he's to speak from the temple to all the cities of Judah that come to worship in the house of Yahweh. So it's very likely a feast day. The cities are coming into Jerusalem. The people from the surrounding area, all of Judah is coming to the temple to worship Yahweh. And Judah is to preach this temple sermon. We have another temple sermon you might remember in chapter 7 that Jeremiah was instructed to preach. And it's very similar. In fact, it's so similar in some very striking ways that many surmise that it's the same sermon. The most striking similarity is the use of Shiloh as a metaphor for the desolation that's to come upon the city. And we'll unpack the significance of that later, but while, why that is so striking is because Shiloh is only mentioned three times in the book of Jeremiah. Here, chapter 26, chapter 7, two sermons, and then the other one is simply geographical, chapter 45. And all the other references in the Old Testament to Shiloh are simply geographical, like we see that instance in chapter 45. Then consider this. These are not the only, this, it's not only that these are the only times Shiloh is mentioned in Jeremiah, these are the only times Shiloh is mentioned in the prophets altogether. It's the only time any of the prophets mention Shiloh. It's the only time that Shiloh is used in this in this image, in a, as a metaphor of, or an image of the judgment that's to come upon them, it's the only time it's used as an image of judgment at all in the Scriptures in chapter 7 and in chapter 26. So you see why they would speculate that these are, the same, these are very likely the same sermon. Nevertheless, I would argue that it might be the same sermon, but it, it was definitely two different instances of that same sermon being preached, if it was the same sermon. Because here, a hope is held out, the people may listen and repent, and I will then relent of the disaster I've intended on it. That hope is held out here, verse 3. But the sermon in chapter 27 is spoken of in this way by Yahweh, 7 and verse 27. So Yahweh tells Jeremiah, you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. You shall call to them, but they will not answer to you. But whenever you study these two sermons side by side, and you think they very likely could be the same sermon, preach two instances at the temple. Both of them are specified. You preach this message at the temple. In both sermons, we know this much. At least use Shiloh as this image of the destruction that's going to come upon them. Whenever you take these two temple sermons and you look at them side by side, you can see why by the fourth year of Jehoiakim, chapter 36 of Jeremiah tells us, Jeremiah's banned from going to the temple. Why? Well, whenever you show up and you say, this place is going to be disturbed during the feast day, whenever all the people have assembled, I imagine that would curb the offerings that were given. And that would look, be looked down on. Tragically, 
today, likewise, whenever the guest preacher causes the offerings to plummet, he's generally not invited back. So Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 13 and 8 and verse 10 both tell us that from the least of them to the greatest, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. So here's one answer that's kind of buried in the text. How do we get from here to there? Whenever the people love false prophets who love ill-gained prophets. When they, lo- when they love false prophets who love ill-gained prophets. That's part of the recipe that gets you from here to there. Jeremiah then is instructed to speak and not hold back anything. Verse 2. Speak, don't hold back any of the words. Now, why would Yahweh instruct Jeremiah to say this in this instance? Well, because it would be a temptation to hold back some of the words. Why would it be a temptation? Because Jeremiah is not a fool. He understands where this is going to go. Don't hold back anything. Jeremiah is commanded not simply to slap the bear. He's telling Jeremiah, go into his cave and slap him and don't hold anything back. Preaching this message then is an act of faith. To declare Yahweh's word, Jeremiah has to believe Yahweh's word. To declare Yahweh's word, he has to believe Yahweh's word. You remember earlier, Yahweh promised him in his calling, chapter 1, verses 7 through 8, do not say, I am only a youth. For to all whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. You hear, it's the same idea. Whatever I command, you shall speak. Don't hold back anything. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares Yahweh. God's word is not to be filtered, it's to be believed. It's not to be filtered, it's to be believed. Whenever we're afraid, we shouldn't preach less of what Yahweh has said. We should believe more of what Yahweh has said. Whenever we're tempted to choke the word, the thing we need in that instance is not less word, we need more word. Not simply declared, but believed. Faithfulness is to be our concern, and then the rest of it is in God's hands. And if we compromise the Word of God to escape man's hands, we've only put ourselves into God's hands, whom we can't fool and we cannot evade. The reason Jeremiah is to do this, though, is there's this hope that God holds out. It's the hope that they might listen, turn from their evil ways, such that God would turn from the intended disaster, verse 3. The reason Jeremiah is to speak and not hold back isn't because in this specific instance God says, there's hope for you to get out of this alive. The, The reason, the motivation Jeremiah is to speak and not hold back is the hope that's held out for his audience. They might listen and turn. Now, Jeremiah does have a promise of general deliverance. We just saw that in chapter 1. He has a promise of general deliverance, but the way we see it played out through the book of Jeremiah isn't that Jeremiah is delivered from suffering. He's often delivered out of suffering. He's already in 
suffering whenever he experiences deliverance again and again. So, now, none of this, though, is to say that Yahweh's uncertain of how this will play out. Maybe they'll listen, Jeremiah, I don't know. Give it another go. God knows how they will respond. Chapter 7, verse, 20, uh, chapter 7, verse 27 again. He knows in that instance that their hearts are hardened and they will not listen. So what's up? Why, why is God framing it this way with Jeremiah? I think two things happen. One, foremost, is that this flavors the tone of Jeremiah's temple sermon. He preaches this message. This is is the kind of reason why he's known as the weeping prophet. He preaches with this kind of hope, this kind of longing, this kind of desire for them to hear and repent and turn back to God. There will come a time, there are instances we've already seen whenever Jeremiah preaches a message of certain and utter destruction. And you get the sense that the tone of that message is very different than than what would happen here. Whenever we preach the gospel, our tone should be most often what we see would have been Jeremiah's in this instance. We should preach the gospel. Preach all the words. Don't hold anything back. Preach sin and judgment, but preach that message hoping longing, praying that those who hear would listen and repent. We shouldn't preach desiring their damnation, but their salvation. And the second thing is that the way this is held out for, held out for us by God in this text, it makes you see, does it not, the rightness of repentance. It makes you long for their repentance. It begins to make repentance a beautiful thing to our hearts, something that we would long for, not simply seeing as ourselves that repentance is right and good, but it's something that we would long for others to come into. It begins to shape our hearts the way we see it would have shaped Jeremiah's. Now, as for the message itself, it appears we only have a summary of it in verses 4 through 6. Again, this could have been a, uh, the same sermon, but it was a different instance of preaching that same sermon, most certainly. It has the same central message, the same central metaphor. Yahweh tells them if they will not listen. Chapter 7, verse 4, if they, if they will not listen... To him, walking in his law that he set before them, listening to the words of the prophets that he sends them, even though they haven't listened. So they haven't listened, so he sends them prophets because they haven't listened, hoping that they will listen. And if they refuse to listen to both the law and the prosecutors who he sent, the prophets showing them how they violated that law, the consequences couldn't be stated more severely. The temple would be made like Shiloh, the city... A waste, a curse for all the nations of the earth. Shiloh was the original site for the tabernacle, the most long-standing site for the tabernacle at, at this point in, uh, in Judah. Whenever the Philistines attacked in this time of the judges, they decided, we'll take the ark 
which rested inside the tabernacle. We'll take the Ark of the Covenant with us into battle. They were treating it like it was this um, power stone with which they could defeat the enemy. And so we'll take the Ark with us into battle. And whenever that happens, uh, the Ark is captured, but Eli's daughter-in-law is pregnant. She gives birth, and she names the child Ichabod, which means no glory, because the glory had departed from Israel. And we're not told when the destruction of Shiloh exactly happened, as it's spoken of here, but it's no doubt connected to this. And here's the way Yahweh speaks of this instance in chapter in the 78th Psalm. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. So before, this, before Shiloh is absolutely destroyed, and it was destroyed at one point, we know this historically, we don't know the date, but before it was destroyed, it was forsaken. And the same thing is going to happen to the temple. It is going to be forsaken by Yahweh. He's leaving it. This is the imagery that's brought out really vividly by Ezekiel. He's leaving his house, forsaking his people, and that's why they're no longer blessed, but the land, the city, is a curse. It's no garden, all thorn. It's not simply the absence of the brightness of God's smile, but the presence of the darkness of His frown upon His people. As He's no longer there to bless, but He is very present to curse. Church, this is the message. This is our message still. Men have to do with God. Either in blessing or in curse. Ultimately, you deal with God. Turn from God and you turn from blessedness. Repent of your sins and there is a message of grace and mercy in Christ held out. There's hope. Now, when the priest and the prophets hear Jeremiah speak, all the words that he was commanded to speak, verse 8, <clears throat> they seize him and they say, you shall die. Jeremiah, I'll remind you, is acting as God's persecutor. Prosecutor, not persecutor. He's acting as God's prosecutor. And they want to flip the tables and play judge. They want to flip this trial Upside down. God is trying them. You haven't listened to my law, and now I'm sending my prosecutors, the prophets, to tell you how you violated my law. And now you want to flip it. Now they're trying to flip it and play judge and judge the prosecutor. Jeremiah comes with God's indictment, and they sentence him. And then they ask the questions. (laughs) The reason that they sentence him to death is implicitly understood with the questions, but the questions you, you know right off the bat, they aren't valid. They aren't really looking for grounds. Whenever the sentence comes before the questioning, you're not really interested in justice. First, then their question is, why have you spoken to us in, in the name of Yahweh? So why are they, why are they saying, you, you shall surely die? This man deserves death. Why? First, with that question, there's implicitly understood the charge of blasphemy. Why have you spoken to us in the name of Yahweh? The implication is, you have no grounds to do so. 
And because you have no grounds to do so, you're taking God's name in vain, blasphemy. And second, naturally following from this is that Jeremiah is a false prophet. The reason why he has no grounds for saying this, he's taken Yahweh's name in vain, therefore he's a false prophet. You cannot tell a false prophet from a true prophet simply by the accusation of one being a false prophet. Jeremiah is saying they're false. They're saying Jeremiah is false. Just saying, well, whoever's accused of being a false prophet, that's who's a false prophet. You can't do it that way. But I think you can reason this much from from the text. If you ever find a person who never, ever, under any circumstances, even if you put his feet to the fire, will say, that man's a false teacher. If you find that guy, that guy's a false teacher. The guy who will never say that there's such a thing as false teaching The guy who will never say that right there, that specific thing. Yes, that is false teaching. That guy is a false teacher. The scriptures are clear. We must deal with God. And the only hope we have in dealing with God as our judge is Jesus Christ. There is no other message than this. And anyone who denies that or or who will say who will not say of men who deny that, that they're false teachers, is a false teacher. A third, one senses that Jeremiah is accused of treason with this. And that's really what, what's getting at um, the reason they want to kill him. And, and you get that more fully when you come to verse 11, and they say, this man deserves the sentence of death because he's prophesied against this city. There are some things that we just think so absurd, so outlandish, that it couldn't be from God. And so, this is why they reason, that couldn't be from God. Therefore, he's a false prophet. And because he's a false prophet, he's blasphemed. He's taken God's name in vain. And the same thing happens today. It doesn't, if it doesn't sound loving, meaning if it doesn't make me feel loved, If it doesn't sound loving and make me feel loved, well, it can't be from God because God is love. Well, next we're told that all the people gather around Jeremiah, verse 9, and as to what this means, we're left in a fog. The word for gathering here could mean an official gathering, the sense of they're getting ready for a trial. It doesn't seem to be the way the... the, the, uh, (laughs) Everything's flowing, though, at this point. This could be a lynching. We don't know. Because we're interrupted. The verse, 10, verse 10 tells us the officials who come from the palace, come from the king's house, they show up and they take their seats of judgment. The, places, the place of judgment, again and again, we see throughout the Old Testament Scriptures, was at the gates. It's where business was transacted. It was a place of judgment. So they take their seats of judgment at the new gate. And we don't have a clue which gate the new gate was. But I think there may be a very subtle and telling reason as to why the people, the prophets, the priests got so upset with Jeremiah's temple sermon here. This is the new gate. With Jeremiah's reformation, the temple was not only cleansed, it was renovated. It went through some extensive renovations. There's a new gate. Here it is. It's all clean. It's all shiny. It's all new. And you come in here telling us that this place will be like Shiloh? What follows then 
is the most detailed account we have of a trial in the Old Testament. The prosecution consists of the priest and the prophets, and the officials are acting as judges along with, I believe you'll see the elders included in that role. But then the people now shift, you notice. They're, they're not so much with the priests and the prophets anymore. They're standing aside hearing the priest and the prophets make their case. They're acting as witnesses. They're being called on as witnesses, but also in a way they're acting as the jury. The prosecution says Jeremiah, the prophets and priests are saying this, he deserves death because he's spoken against this city. Again, this is just simply outlandish. It's unimaginable to them. In his temple sermon in chapter 7, Jeremiah warned them, do not trust in these deceptive words. The temple of Yahweh! The temple of Yahweh! The temple of Yahweh! That was their argument against God's destruction. The presence of that temple meant that God was present with them. How could the city be destroyed? So just like in Samuel's day, they were treating the temple which housed the ark, the same way they treated the ark in their battle with the Philistines, like some kind of magical talisman that they could wield for their own security. So the message of the false prophets then, chapter 6, verse 14, chapter 8, and verse 11, is peace, peace. And isn't it striking how the ones who say peace, peace, are now out for blood? Does it sound familiar again? Those who preach tolerance, tolerance, so often are the most intolerant. They want tolerance for their voice and everyone everyone else's. But when it comes to the message of God, they're out for blood. And three defenses follow. First, you have that of Jeremiah, verses 12 through 15. The officials, verse 16. And finally, the elders, verses 17 through 19. So Jeremiah now addresses the officials and the people, answering the question that was posed to him earlier. Why have you said this in the name of Yahweh? Why have you prophesied against the city in the name of Yahweh? And his answer is, Yahweh told me to. (laughs) Why have you done this? Because he said to, verse 12. So now the trial, Jeremiah is going to flip back right side up. They're They're trying Jeremiah, but Jeremiah reminds them, you're the ones on trial. Yahweh has declared disaster, and he's graciously extended this mercy. If you will repent, he will relent. And then Jeremiah doesn't deny that they have authority in the sense of power. They have a position and they have the power to do with him as they wish, verse 14. What he contends is you can't do so without consequences because you're not the chief judge. You're a judge. You've got that authority. But if you don't use that rightly, you're under an authority. There's a judge that will judge the judges. If you execute me, you're not only condemning an innocent man, but one who in truth has spoken to you Yahweh's word. 
Jeremiah here doesn't grow disoriented because he has the proper reference point. He knows who is the judge of all the earth. Whenever men are big and God is small, our perception is off. We've got the wrong reference point. We become short-sighted and that's when we run into judgment. Jeremiah's boldness here, you see, is born out of fear. He realizes with whom he has to deal. God said, don't hold anything back. He realizes who the judge... Can you see how Jeremiah's message could build confidence and faith? I'm preaching a message of judgment and I need to be bold in it because of the judgment I'm speaking of is one that I will have to face. He knows who the judge is. And Jeremiah's response here also reminds me of a recurring episode in the missionary John Patton's life. John Patton was a missionary to the New Hebrides, what is now Vanuatu. He was a missionary there in the mid-19th century. And the first island he went to, he never won a convert to Christ for the many years that he was on that island. Another missionary who followed him did. He went to another missionary, and God blessed the gospel there. But while he was on this first island, he was threatened again and again and again. And so in one instance, uh, some traders had come to the island, and, and sick, uh, measles had, or you know, some sickness was afflicting the, uh, the people on the island. And, and they say to him, this is one of the vessels which brought the measles. You and they made the sickness and destroyed our people. Now, if you do not leave with this vessel, we will kill you all. And Patton writes, Of course, their intention was to frighten me on board, just as I was, and leave my premises for plunder. I protested, I will not leave you. I cannot leave you in this way. And if you murder these men or me, Jehovah will punish you. I am here for your good, and you know how kind I've been to you all in giving you medicine, knives, axes, blankets, and clothing. You know well that I've not, never done ill to one human being, but have constantly sought your good. I will not and cannot leave you thus. In great wrath they cried, then we will kill you and this captain and mate. I kept reasoning with them against such conduct, standing firmly before them and saying, If you kill me, Jehovah will punish me punish you. The other men in that vessel will punish you before they sail. And a man of war, a battleship, a man of war will come and burn your villages and canoes and fruit trees. Patton would often make this argument to win it for a day, only to have to make it again in more dire circumstances. But what I want you to see is that Patton's fear was a liberating fear. He had the proper reference point. It was a liberating fear. Theirs was an enslaving fear. And you see this because his fear led to boldness, whereas their fear led to cowardice. Saints, fear God. Speak all His words. Don't hold any back. Psalm 56, 1-4. through be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, 
In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Following Jeremiah's defense, the officials give not so much a defense as they do a verdict in verse 16. And note how the people from hearing the argument are now rendering the verdict with the officials. The officials and all the people said to the priests and the prophets, This man does not deserve the sentence of death, for he has spoken to us in the name of Yahweh our God. So the people began with saying, You shall die with the prophets and priests, verse 8. And then they transitioned to acting as both witnesses and jury, verse 11. And now they're speaking in favor of the defendant. Reading chapter 25, 26, in light of chapter 25, is most illuminating, you see. The people have heard, but they haven't listened. I think this, this move of the people here speaks of two things. One, they're easily swayed. They're driven about by every wind. And second, to give them a bit more credit in this, they like the false prophet's message, and they, to some extent, fear Jeremiah's. And so, the decision they make is simply to be good conservatives. Play it safe. Keep the status quo. If we kill Jeremiah, certain destruction could happen right now. That's not a good option. And so we'll just give the appearance of hearing and listening to Jeremiah. But it's really the false prophet's message. Though we're not listening to the false prophets telling us to kill him, it's really they who we want to hear and not Jeremiah. Chesterton said it's the job of uh, liberals to make, keep on making mistakes. And it's the job of conservatives to keep those mistakes from being corrected. Keep the, old, keep the older mistakes from being corrected. That's what's happening here. The way God's truth is ignored by the masses is not so much overt enmity as it is apathy. Man's hatred for God's truth, think, most often displays itself in disinterest, indifference, passivity, lethargy, unresponsiveness. Whenever violence typically happens, it's because there's a power threat perceived. That's whenever things get dicey. But if if no leadership, no power struggle is in sight by uh, some some earthly potentate, if that's not there, then people generally generally respond with, "Mm." God's word comes to man with its total demands and man responds with, meh. Sinner, God commands you to turn from your sins and to turn in faith towards Christ. And He threatens judgment if you will not listen. Indifference is just as much an expression of hatred as is outright violence to dismiss God calmly instead of violently does not 
avert disaster. The last defense on behalf of Jeremiah is made by the elders in verses 17 through 19. And their argument was one of historical precedent. Micah of Morasheth prophesied a similar message during the days of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah responded with brokenness and contrition and pleading God's favor. And God relented of the disaster that he had pronounced. Now on a side note, Micah 3.12 is quoted here. And it's the only instance of a cited attribution, an attributed citation. It's the only instance of an attributed citation by one prophet of another prophet that we see in the Old Testament. But the final verses then, I think it's clear, come to us not as a continued argument from the elders, but as, an, as the narrator's postscript to give us further details about what's happening. At this same time, Uriah, contemporary of Jeremiah, was preaching the same message. Everything that we know about Uriah, it's right here. This is it. This is all we get. So Uriah is preaching against the city, but this time Jehoiakim's in on the game. Game. And he wants him dead. Uriah hears about it. In fear, he flees. So, Jehoiakim sends Elnathan. Basically, uh, Uriah is extradited, brought back, executed. In Uriah's instance, we're told the officials comply with the king's decision. So, how is it then that Jeremiah escapes a similar fate? Not in this specific instance anymore. What what we're really looking at now, with what we've been told about Uriah, is how does Jeremiah, over the span of his ministry, especially during the reign of King Jehoiakim, how does Jeremiah escape the same fate? And we'll see in chapter 36 when we get there that Jeremiah does have some connections that help protect him. How does he escape? Well, the answer we're given here is that one official, Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, was with him. So that he wasn't given over to the people. Now we're back to the masses to be put to death. The prophets, the priests, the king, they all want to see Jeremiah dead. And the people are fickle and easily swayed. The family of Shaphan would continually minister to Jeremiah. Backing up, Shaphan was that secretary of King Josiah. He was the very secretary who read the book of the law to King Josiah. And another one of Shaphan's sons, Gemariah, would be the one who pled with Jehoiakim not to burn the scroll of Jeremiah. Ahikam's son, Gedaliah, was the one who was made governor by Nebuchadnezzar. And Jeremiah was entrusted to his care, chapter 39 and verse 14. But we see in 2 Kings chapter 25, that one captain, Nethaniah, along with Elishama, who we are told was a member of the royal family, conspire and put Gedaliah to death. And one reason I think it's very apparent why they would do so, is because he was a patron of sorts for Jeremiah. 
So this chapter then, you see, serves as an indictment, not only on the prophets and the priest and the king, but on all the people. Why was Jeremiah put to death? Uh, You don't have to read between the lines. Very hard to see it simply because God was not through with him yet. It wasn't because Jeremiah was checking all the boxes, whereas Uriah, well, he got scared and ran. We're not told that Uriah was executed because he was fearful and ran. That's reading too much into the text. Some die, some live. God has his purposes, and he has not, he's not obliged to disclose them to us. Our part isn't to figure out how things will go with us and then act. Our part is simply to be faithful. Jesus promised us, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so They persecuted the prophets who were before you. And speaking of Jesus, certain parallels are brought to mind now, are they not? He too was a true prophet. Standing before false priests in a kangaroo court. What were the accusations brought against him? Well, a couple of witnesses came forward saying, This man said he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Destroy the temple. They couldn't get their their stories to corroborate, but nonetheless, that was one of the accusations brought against Jesus, that this temple would be destroyed. But what did they finally nail him on? Well, as far as getting the verdict to really have any weight with the Jews concerning their law, It was blasphemy. Why are you speaking in the name of Yahweh, basically? Matthew's gospel, the priest demands, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. But Christ was, in truth, the prophet of Yahweh. And in sentencing him, they brought certain disaster Upon themselves. Well, that was the verdict as so far as their law was concerned, but how to get him killed because they didn't have that authority as they were now under the Romans? Well, whenever they come to the officials, whenever the false priests come to the officials of the king, Caesar, to get him killed, then their accusation becomes one of treason. He says he's king. We have no king but Caesar. And Pilate, the official, initially, as the officials here, is in favor 
for the defendant. But this instance, the crowds are swayed by the false priest. And it's the official who capitulates. As they cry out, crucify him. And all that Jeremiah escaped, Jesus then endured and more. As he hung on the cross, he was not only forsaken by man, forsaken by his own, as Jeremiah was. But if Jeremiah was executed, we would know this much, God was with him. But in this instance, the true prophet is forsaken not only by man as he's suspended on the cross, he's forsaken by heaven as he bears the curse for our sins. And yet, in this, he was resigning himself to the will of the Father to drink of the cup of God's wrath, to reconcile we who had not listened. The trial we should all be concerned with is the one where we will stand before the judge of heaven. He demands justice. He cannot be swayed. We are all sinners. But this is the good news. That's the hope that's held out to you in His very Word, if you will listen. This is... This is the good news that Christ died for sinners, bearing their judgment. Don't just hear this word. Listen. Repent of your sins. Turn in trust towards Christ, the Christ who bore God's wrath for sinners. And you will be saved. Know that there is no other hope than this. Meet this word with indignation or indifference. Either one, it does not matter. And destruction is certain. But know this. If you truly repent and believe, salvation is certain. Let's pray. Father, praise be to you. The only words any of us should hear from your mouth are words of sentencing, words of damnation, words of condemnation. The heavens declare your glory. And we suppress that truth in unrighteousness. And all we deserve is death. We've heard your law. Our conscience bears witness. And we have sinned against it. And yet, in your mercy, you've sent those who have declared your word. We compound our guilt by not listening to them. 
Despite all this not listening, you, you speak this word of hope, the good news of Christ, that if we would repent, you will relent, that there is mercy for us in Christ. So praise be to you. And grant us open ears and soft hearts towards this word. Father, when we open your word, whenever your word is truly preached, may there be a kind of holy hush over our souls, a kind of opening reverence to not simply hear, but to listen. To the voice of the living God in your holy word. And Father, for any soul here that is under your wrath and judgment at present, Father, it is our hope and our longing and our prayer to you that right now, or perhaps already during the preaching of your word, that you have opened their ear and that you've granted them repentance and faith. That they've been welcomed now in love as sons and know you are Lord, know you are Savior. Father, may we depart here with boldness to preach all your words with that hope, knowing that the gospel is the power of God into salvation to everyone who believes, and that you have many that you desire to save yet from every people, every tribe, every nation. We can go certain forward certain that your word will not fail. It may be our part to die, but we die trusting you, Father, that it's ultimately with you that we have to deal, and in Christ our sins have already been dealt with. In the strong name of Jesus we pray, amen.